Uh, can I be honest with you for a second? I don't like going to church. Uh, it's frustrating, it's boring, it's just hypocrites going through the motions uh, and not really caring about what they're doing. It's basically a massive waste of time. And actually, it would be better not to bother at all. Now, you'll be pleased that those are not my words. Uh, but I don't know whose words you'd expect them to be. Maybe you think some famous atheist or something like that has, has written that in a newspaper or something like this. But actually, the shocking thing is that that is essentially what God says to his people in this passage. Rather than wanting their worship, he says, it would be better if you close the doors of the temple and go home. No more sacrifices, no more praise, no more prayer. It would be better if you were just silent. And it's not even because they were worshipping the wrong gods. They had come back from exile. They were following the patterns that were set out in God's law. And yet he still just wants them to stop. There are strong words in this passage. There are hard words. There's a big problem in the book of Malachi. And actually it's a problem that's all too common, I think, for today as well. And that's why we need to pay real careful attention uh, to what God has to say to us through this passage. Uh, if you were here last week, we started this series uh, looking at the first five verses. Uh, and really we saw the complacency of God's people uh, starting to come out. Uh, if you look at verse 2, it says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And God's complacent people says, how have you loved us? Why are we suffering? Why are we struggling like this if you have loved us? And God reminds them of this amazing covenant love that he has for them, that he has chosen them, that he has loved them. He has shown them great grace that they do not deserve. But really what happens in those first few verses, it sets up a pattern that runs through the rest of the book. God makes this statement uh, and the people start questioning it, saying, how have we done that? What, what are you talking about? And it reveals some big problems going on in their hearts. And what we'll see this week, there's a big problem with how they respect God, how they honour him. We're going to think about that. We're going to think about how that should challenge us as well. Uh, it's worth saying this week, uh, there was a commentary by de Goyd and Harmon that I found really, really helpful. Lots of their insights and, and some of their application sort of woven in here. And it felt right to just give them a bit of credit uh, where credit's due on that one. So uh, if you want to look them up afterwards, I can, I can point you that way. But let's start uh, by looking at the passage and thinking about this question. Where is God's respect and honour? Look at verse 6 again. A son honours his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. So do you see, in the first few verses, God's saying, look, I have loved you. And they start questioning, how have you loved us? And then it leads on to this problem. God says, oh, I have been a father to you, a master to you. He deserves their honour and respect. That's true, isn't it? If, if you're a parent, you expect honour and respect from your children. If, if we do the same for our parents, if you work, you have respect for those over you at work uh, and so on. But the problem is here, it's right at the heart of Israelite culture. Right at the, the centre, right in the temple. The priests were part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Do you see what it says? They're showing contempt for my name. Now, when some contempt means you think something's worthless, it means it's not worth respecting. It's just uh, you, you don't want to know, basically. And they immediately say, how have we done that? 
as if they've got no idea what they've done wrong. It's almost, they think they're okay. Well, look at what God says in verse 7 and 8. By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. You know, when we first had our boys, someone gave us a travel cot. Uh, and uh, it was great. We thought, oh, that's lovely. That's nice, a nice thing to have. Uh, it means we don't have to buy one. That, that, that will save us some money. But almost immediately, we realised it stank of smoke. It come from a smoker's home. And it was stale and smelly. And we were just like, there's no way we are putting our boys in this. You know, it, it, it went to the tip. It was polluted. It was ruined. We couldn't accept it. And that was the problem with Israel's sacrifices as well. Uh, if you go back to Leviticus in, the, in God's law, again and again, here's just one example in, in 1 verse 3. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you're to offer a male without defect. That phrase, if you look through it, it says without defect. Again and again and again. It's supposed to be a perfect sacrifice. And instead, you see what they're doing? They're offering blind, lame, diseased animals to be sacrificed. In one sense, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, there's a picture of two lambs. If you were going to choose one to sacrifice, what are you going to do? Are you going to choose the one that's got some value, got some strength, that's going to grow up and be a valuable lamb? Or are you going to think, oh, if I can get away with, you know, sacrificing that kind of small little runty one, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I do that? And the priests are like, yeah, that's fine. Of course it is. You, no problem at all. Whatever you do, whatever you want, just, just bring it on uh, and we'll sacrifice it for you. It's, it's not good. God says this is serious business. Uh, if you look at verse 14 right at the end, God, God says, cursed is the cheat who, who says, oh, I'm going to offer you a perfect animal and then chooses a, a, a defiled animal instead, one that isn't perfect. It's not like God's fault. God sees these things happening. They haven't given their best to God. And it's not an acceptable form of worship. And that's why he makes that point in verse 8. You know, if you were to go to your governor, they were under the Persian Empire at the time, so they had this governor, and you wanted to give him a gift, is he going to be impressed? Is he going to be happy if you give him this pathetic little creature? No. What makes that okay to do that with God? That was Peter's point earlier when we were handing out those presents. They, They weren't very good, were they? They weren't giving their best. And and that's what Israel were doing with God. God says, why why should God be gracious if they show no respect? Verse 12 and 13, they kind of build on this argument. Look at verse 12. You profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled. Its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands? Now, verse 12 almost needs a a little gloss, a a slight addition to the translation to say, it's all right to defile. That's what the people are saying, like, it's fine. It's fine for us to defile the Lord's table. They're justifying what they're doing. But verse 13 is shocking, isn't it? As they offer this, they they kind of just offer their... their, 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 um, 
defiled sacrifices. It's like they're sort of sighing and, and slumping, going, oh, this is such a burden, this is such a hassle to have to do this. I can't believe I've got to do this. It's a big problem, isn't it? Do you see, they're not giving God the honour and the respect that he deserves. Not only as the, the Lord and King of all, but as the one who loves them so dearly. We saw that last week. Why would they expect to be welcomed by God, listened to, if they're so half-hearted in their worship? And that's why God says in verse 10, this really shocking verse, isn't it? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not uh, light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. That is stark, isn't it? It would be better to close the doors to stop the sacrifices, send the priests home. It would be better not to bother at all than to do what you're doing right now, to offer these half-hearted offerings. It's a big problem, isn't it? Israel had a big problem with what they were doing. They were not giving God their best. And that, 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 I'm sure, should challenge us today to ask that same question. Do we give God our best? Do we give God our best? Now, we don't have to bring animals anymore to sacrifice uh, to God. I'm sure you'll be relieved to hear that. Uh, it's a lot less messy. But actually, do you see that because they had to bring something, it showed what was going on in their hearts. You know, they weren't giving their best. And it was obvious they weren't because they were bringing these lame, diseased animals. You could see what was going on in their hearts. That's trickier for us, isn't it? We don't have obvious kind of things that we're bringing to show what's going on. We can look okay on the outside. We can look like we're doing fine. We can do what everyone else is doing and we can get away with it. But we are called to a really high standard of worship. This is Romans 12 verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That's a big verse, isn't it? We are, we are called to offer our bodies. That's really just a way of saying everything, our lives, all that we have to God as a sacrifice to him. We're called to not live for ourselves, but to him. That's much more, isn't it, than an animal sacrifice. Not just giving our best, but giving our whole lives to him. In Hebrews, we get a, just a small glimpse of what that looks like. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. There's the language of sacrifice there, but it's talking about having praise always on our lips, doing good, loving others, putting other people above ourselves, basically living like Jesus did. God is pleased when we make sacrifice, when we let go of our own lives and we live like Jesus. Now, that's a high standard, isn't it? You look at the Gospels, you look at how Jesus lived his life, you think, well, how far short have I fallen from that? We don't, I think sometimes, it's true, isn't it? If we actually look deep inside, we realise that our worship, the, the choices we make each day, it kind of reveals the truth that we don't have the same view of God as we should. Maybe we have a similar sense to verse 13, and it feels like a bit of a burden to worship God. We sort of, we sigh, we think, oh, I've got, to, I've got to go this this afternoon. It's a bit of a nuisance, a bit of a hassle to get out of the house. Maybe it's not worth praying. Maybe it's not worth opening my Bible this week. I just need some time for myself. I just need to, 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 to do something for me. 
Let me read you a quote that I found really challenging this week. The evidence of our misconceived views of God is as clearly visible in us as it was in the lives of Malachi's hearers. We joyfully offer our hearts, our time and our possessions to our idols while resenting and resisting the Lord's gracious demands on our lives. Read that bit again. We joyfully offer our hearts, our time and our possessions to our idols while resenting and resisting the Lord's gracious demands on our lives. I want to just try and unpack that a bit, try and think about what does that actually look like? What does that mean for us? So let's think about those three things that he mentioned. Let's start by thinking about our money, our possessions. How do we, let's think about how we give God our best in terms of our money and possessions. Just imagine a scale, okay, of, uh, of how much you like to spend money. On one side, you've got the things you really want to spend money on, right? New clothes, a PS5 game, new car, new bike, saving up for something special, uh, spending money on the house, the garden, the kitchen, all those sort of things. Those are things we want to spend our money on, aren't they? Then we have things we kind of need to spend money on. The bills, uh, the food, the mortgage, fuel, all those sort of things. Just things we, we know we have to spend to get by. And then we've got things we hate spending money on. The unexpected repairs, the student loans, the, the parking tickets, the fines, maybe a trip to the dentist if you don't like the dentist. Those sort of things, aren't they? We, we kind of oh, I don't really want to spend the money on those things. So where does giving to God fit on that scale for you? Does it fit up there at the kind of want-to end of things? Is it, do you have the attitude thinking, well, actually, you know, I'm going to cut down on this area, cut down on this area so that I can give more to gospel ministry. I, I can give more to the church in Kenilworth and, and further afield. Maybe that's, that, that's where you are. Maybe you're more in that kind of need-to category, thinking yeah, it's a bit begrudging. think, oh, yeah, okay, I know I'm supposed to give. It's the right thing to do. But it's a bit of a pull. It's a bit of a drag. You think somehow... I'd rather be spending it on something else. Or are you down the other end? And just really frustrated that you're supposed to give money to others. Thinking, doesn't God want me to be happy and secure? I'm going to put myself first, actually, rather than thinking of others. It's a challenge, isn't it? It's interesting to maybe consider our budget and think about what it says about our worship. There's a verse in Corinthians that gives us a helpful guide. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's helpful, isn't it? That's what God's looking for. Whatever we decide, it's doing it cheerfully. Doing it for those motives. There's a question, isn't it? Are we giving our best of our money to God? What about our time? We are busy people, aren't we? We've got lots going on. We're always on the go. And the question is, what do we prioritise? Uh, what do we never miss? What do we always make time for? What are the, the TV shows that we, we make sure we, we keep on track with? Or the sports that we follow? Or, or making time for family and friends and that sort of thing? What do we prioritise? Just imagine, here's a little exercise for you. Imagine just for, for, for one minute you, that for all of your regular responsibilities, all of the things you normally have to do are cancelled for 24 hours. Okay. Just, I don't know what your gut reaction is, but in your head, what, what's the thing that you would do if your calendar was just cleared? You had nothing. What's the thing that comes to mind? Maybe you think, oh, I could spend more time with my kids because I'm not working. Or maybe you're thinking, I wouldn't have to spend so much time with my kids. I could have a day off from them. 
Maybe you're thinking, oh, I'd just love to curl up with a good book. Or go for a walk, go for a run, go to the gym, go do, do, do that sort of thing. Maybe it's do some DIY, catch up on errands, you know, do that thing, that, that job that you've been putting off for so long. Maybe it's just going to sleep, <laughs> catching up on some sleep. I don't know what it is for you that you instinctively think, oh yeah, that, that's what I do at that time. I think sometimes it can, it can reveal our hearts a little bit. What about the opposite? What about when time is squeezed and, and we don't have all the time that we want? What do we resent missing out on? What are the things we sort of go, oh, can't believe I've got to miss that. What do you wish you had more time to do? And then how does our worship of God fit into that pattern, the pattern of how we spend our time? Do we long for Sunday to come around? Thinking, oh, it's the highlight of my week. I can't wait to be with my church family, rejoicing, hearing from God's words. Is that your attitude? Do you love going to home group? Do you love coming to prayer meeting? Or if you're honest, is it a kind of like, actually, prayer meeting, it's basically a week off home group, right? Because I can kind of get away with it. I don't have to be there because I know lots of other people will be there. I can just take that week off. Is it, are we proactive? Do we, do we make, do we protect time to read God's word, to pray, to, to listen to sermons, to read good Christian books? And then actually how often when we do find the time to do that, do we kind of end up daydreaming a bit and thinking, if I'm honest, I'd kind of rather be doing something else. It feels a bit tedious. We end up thinking like verse 13, it's a bit of a burden. Maybe it'd be better to get a bit more sleep or watch TV or, or something like that. It's really hard, isn't it? If you think about the things that we do diligently prepare for, things like exams and job interviews and presentations at work and family events that we put lots of effort and time into, is that the same with church life? Is that what we do? Or, or do we end up kind of rocking up to church with tired minds, unprepared hearts, because we're maybe not expecting anything important to happen when we come together? I think it's really hard because we meet in the afternoon, isn't it? So we've had kind of most of a day already and we, we, we're busy, we're doing things. And then that can, that can leave us tired or distracted. And we need to think, it's that preparing my heart well to come to church. Am I preparing myself to listen to the sermon? Uh, am I expecting it to, to speak to me? Or am I expecting it to be boring? If you're not sure, you know, how to, if, what sort of questions to ask as you're listening to a sermon, have a look at the note sheet at the back. There's some helpful prompts about, you know, just to get you thinking uh, as sermons are preached, to engage your hearts. Are we giving the best of our time to God? It's challenging, isn't it? And then what about our hearts? What about our hearts? You know, I think a good way for us to, to reflect on how we worship is what happens in our hearts when things go wrong. When the car breaks down, when there's a leak at home, when ill health hits, and those sort of things. How do we react? Do we just despair? Think, oh, I can't believe I've got to spend my time and my money on this. I really don't need this right now, God. Do we despair? Do we get filled with anxiety? The stress builds up, we've, we're worried, we're, we're constantly churning things around our head, we're never relaxed, we're worried about the bills, our finances, all of those things, they, they, they kind of spiral out of control. Or do we just get angry? Do we get frustrated at what's going on? Think, I can't believe this is happening to me, I don't deserve this. It's revealing, isn't it, how we react in those moments. 
Do we have a tendency to forget who our father, who our master is? Think, actually, God, he could have orchestrated this day, this week, to have gone differently. Why is he allowing these things to happen? This isn't what I deserve, God. Those moments. In those moments, we have an opportunity to either turn to God in worship, to cling tightly to him, to hold on to him, or in our frustration, to kind of act out in a different way, to look somewhere else, to give uh, hope, to find hope, or, or to escape into I don't know what it is for you when you've had a bad day. What, what are you tempted to, to, to look to? Maybe it's that extra chocolate bar, that extra cake, just, just reaching out for some sort of comfort food. Maybe it's switching on the TV and just kind of numbing yourself by binging some TV show. Maybe it's drinking more than we should. Maybe it's browsing the TV, the internet, just, just in, scrolling, playing games, even looking at porn. And things like that. How do we react? What might we lean towards? It's an amazing thing, isn't it? We could, we could run to our Heavenly Father. Uh, we could talk to him about our fears and our hurts and our worries. We could realise he knows it all. He's there for us. He's there to encourage us and help us. And instead, what do we do? We go the other way and we kind of think we're orphans, that he doesn't care about us, that we're left on our own. And maybe we end up thinking, well, why, why should I give God my best when he's not given his best to me? That's exactly what was going on in the Israelites' hearts, wasn't it? With these defiled sacrifices. Just, it's fine. If, God, if I'm not getting this from God, I can, I can do what I like. If we don't get what we think we deserve. It's hard, isn't it? We need to examine our hearts on these things. Especially because if we're really honest... We remember we don't deserve anything. We don't deserve anything at all. Or well, maybe we think, actually, but surely it would be easier for me, wouldn't it, if, if I'm doing okay? It would be much easier to give my best to God if everything was going well in life. But actually, even if everything was going well, we can still bring half-hearted worship. Instead of praising God for it and thanking him, we can think, at last, now I've got time for myself. Now I've got time to, to do what I really want to do, to put my feet up, to relax. It's challenging. I hope that uh, the Spirit is convicting us, is, is challenging us. I know that he's been doing that in my heart this week as I've been preparing this. You look at my heart and I think, it's no wonder that God says it's better not to bother, that it would be better to close the doors of the, the temple, close the doors of the church because you're not giving me what I deserve. It's too easy for us to, to take God for granted, to quietly just think, ah, he, he should be okay with whatever whatever I bring to him in worship. There's that well-known song, isn't there? A classic hymn, I surrender all. I surrender all. It says, all to you, my blessed saviour. If we're honest, we should be singing, I surrender some. I surrender some. Some to you, my blessed saviour. I surrender some. And actually, the priests are the ones being challenged here, aren't they? They're the ones saying that all of this is okay leading God's people astray and I really I don't want to be like that as I came to this passage I was like we've got to see haven't we that it's not okay for us to offer God the, the dregs of our hearts that's not what he's looking for and it's probably right isn't it for us just to pause briefly now why don't we just come in confession to God let's just spend a moment in, in quiet reflecting on where this week where this month maybe you've you've not given your best to him admit that to God come in confession Expose your heart. 
say sorry let, let, and, and then I'll pray let's just have a moment of quiet Father, your word exposes our hearts. It exposes where our worship falls so far short. Uh, we thank you that it, it, it provokes us and gets us thinking and convicts us. Please humble us and please help us feel that deep sorrow for where we have not worshipped you as we should. Father, forgive us for our sin. Please help us feel the weight of, of all that we have not done for you and not the ways we have fallen short and, and, and not offered you true worship. Please work in our hearts and, yeah, change us, we pray. Amen. The good news is that that is not the end of the sermon. <laughs> uh, there is hope for us, actually, today too. Because, actually, there's hope for us because this passage is in the Bible. Do you see that? Uh, that if it wasn't there, we would never realise what, what we're doing wrong. But God has seen the problem. God is, is showing us the problem with our hearts. And the good news is that he has done something about it. Remember how the book starts. It says, God says, I have loved you. God loves his people. Uh, and something Jim said last week really stuck with me through the, throughout this week. He said, God loved them too much to leave them there. And that's so true, isn't it? He loved them enough to act. And actually, we even get hints of that in the passage, even in the midst of the kind of condemnation. Look at verse 11. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. God says, a day is coming where worship will not be half-hearted, where God will receive the praise that he deserves, not just from Israel, but from all nations from the new Israel, from God's people, the church. But how will this happen? How could this be possible, we might be thinking? How can God accept half-hearted, distracted, rebellious worshippers like you and me? We can be tempted, can't we? We are tempted to question God's love when trouble comes. We're tempted to justify our inadequate worship. We think, how can God do this? It's because he sent a true worshipper in our place. One who always gave his best. A true son who gave everything in worship, in love for his father. He gave perfect honour and perfect respect. He was a suffering servant who gave up his life for us. For us to save you and me. To show us such love. The Lord Jesus. And remember as he lived, what, what did his father say? With you I am well pleased. Jesus lived a life of perfect love, perfect obedience. He never sinned. He never offered half-hearted worship. He never offered a blemished sacrifice. He loved his father with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his soul, all of his strength. And then he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. He gave up his life on the cross so that we could have life. And as he died on the cross, the, think about what happened there. The, the father turned his face away. 
as if his son were one of those pathetic half-hearted worshippers of Malachi's day, of our day. The father turned his face. Jesus was forsaken. Jesus was abandoned as if it were he who had dishonored God. So that we who actually have done that could be forgiven and could be welcomed into God's family. And that, that friends, is why we keep the church doors open. That's why we don't shut, shut them and go home. This is why we keep them open. This is why we have hope week by week, despite our imperfect efforts. Because we come together as a family of God's people, united by God's grace, united by him saving us. He doesn't see our failures in worship anymore. He doesn't see our sinful hearts because he sees the perfect worship of the Son who died in our place. And Jesus makes our worship acceptable to God. Isn't that glorious news? Isn't that wonderful? Such love, such grace that has been shown to us. We keep the doors open. We want everyone to hear. We go out and tell people this wonderful news that God loves us. We should be so thankful. And that's my prayer, really, that that for us as a church, as we think about this amazing reality, as the truth sinks deep inside, that it transforms us, that the Spirit ministers his truth to us, helps us to grow. You know, it's not, we can't respond to this problem of half-hearted worship by just trying a bit harder. Our efforts will always need that perfecting by him. But actually, as the Spirit works in our lives, we can grow in wholeheartedness. We change, we, we, we improve. And we remember, yeah, God has loved me. He still loves me today. Whatever I've done, he loves me. He left his glorious throne to come to this pain-filled world to save me to save you to give himself up on the cross and that that love if we grasp that love that's what kind of ignites us isn't it that that you know it heats our, our cold hearts and our insincere worship and ignites us to praise and worship and adoration in much more deep ways that's what we're looking for his grace that's what we hold on to it means we can be with him forever we will not be excluded will never be shut out such incredible love he has shown to us that's why he deserves our best the best of our time our money our hearts our lives and actually if you're sitting here today and think i've never given my life to christ i've never decided to follow him for myself maybe this is that day that you've realized the depth of your sin and the wonderful love and grace that can be yours the forgiveness that can be yours if you put your trust in him Find someone after them, pray with them. They'd love to pray with you. I would love to pray with you if you're thinking about these things. But for all of us, I just hope this is encouraging. I know it's, it's a hard message, but it's also encouraging, is it? That, that we can go into this week almost casting off the shame of our half-hearted worship. Because we have Jesus, and he has forgiven us, and he has made us new. And we strive onwards to keep giving God our best. To keep remembering that promise of Malachi 1 verse 11 his name will be great among the nations and if we're believing him we'll be part of that crowd part of that that group worshiping him for eternity it's glorious news so i hope it's just keep keep yeah hold on to that i hope god has challenged you but reassured you too of his love why don't we pray and give thanks father it is a tough passage it is one that i hope has convicted us all But I thank you that it is not the final word because of your son. And we thank you so much for his love and his compassion and his sacrifice for us. 
that means we can be redeemed and purified and that we can worship you and that, that you accept us thanks to him. So please send us out from this place convicted but thankful. Thankful that we have a saviour that has done it all for us. That we can give our best to you because you have already given your best to us. We thank you so much for your mercy, your love, for everything. Amen.